Thank you for listening to this teaching from Table Church. We're in our Advent series right now called How to Hope Again. Now it's been said that we live in a hope-sick world. That means that hope is hard to find and it's evident in everything from our emotional lives to our political discourse. We need to learn how to hope again. And there's no better time than Christmas. So if you're near the Des Moines area this holiday season, we'd love to have you join us at our Christmas Eve service. It'll be at 6 p.m. at the Des Moines Community Playhouse. You can learn more at tablechurchdsm.org. Now, please enjoy this week's message. Good morning. Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Once again, everybody, good morning. It's good to have you here today. And as we get started, I want to remind you um, of our Christmas Eve service, naturally on Christmas Eve, which is on a Saturday this year. And so Saturday at 6 o'clock right here, uh, and then we will not have Sunday morning service on Christmas Day. All right, just in case you are really ambitious. Not that I expected there to be a line out the door, but on Christmas morning, we will not have service here, so please don't come. However, the next Sunday, New Year's Day, we will have service. So get to bed early, come to church, all right? <laughs> Uh, and also, uh, our Christmas Eve service is going to be great. It always is. It's one of my highlights of the year. Uh, the kids are going to have a special role in the service this year. And uh, in fact, they're going to be practicing on stage parents after church. Uh, so in case you might have missed the email or forgotten, uh, you, after church is over today, you can just stay in your seat and they'll bring your kids out here and they'll do a quick run through. And if you just really like cute things, then you can stay and watch too. It's up to you. So, uh, you know, when a child falls and scrapes their knee, their immediate reflex is to look for their parent, their caregiver, okay, mom or dad, not just any random stranger will do. In fact, it would be a little odd, we might be a little worried if a child falls in the playground and then just immediately runs past their mom into some random stranger. It'd be, oh, this isn't right, you know, like there'd be something wrong there. You see, when this happens, when, it, when a child looks for their caregiver, uh, what we're seeing is the result of an amazing psychological process that we call attachment. Attachment is the emotional bond that is formed between a child and their caregiver, and it is the way that many of the child's needs are met. You see, when a child who has truly made a healthy attachment encounters something painful or scary, 
their reflex is to immediately look for that caregiver. And this happens faster than the speed of conscious thought. They're not thinking to themselves, well, I should probably go find my mom. No, it's just something inside of them is saying, mom, now. Right Before they even sometimes realize that they're hurt, that something scary has happened, and they know that they need their mom or dad or their parent or their caregiver. Even in, in the first years of life, every time a baby cries, the caregiver comes and comforts the baby. The baby's hungry, they get comforted. They get, they're scared, they need a diaper change, they're comforted. And, and this cycle that we call the attachment cycle happens thousands of times in the early years of a baby's life. And through this process, neural pathways in the brain are formed and the child learns a very important skill for life. And that is the ability to trust. The child knows that when I need something, help will come. And they have developed the ability to trust. Listen, attachment gives us the ability to trust. I wonder... What if we started understanding our walk with God in terms of attachment? What if faith is less about how much stuff you know in here and more about becoming a person who has attached to Jesus? This means that we would be the kind of person who when something difficult comes along in life, we would, our, our impulse, our reflex, our gut reaction would be to reach out to God. Rather than question or doubt or despair, we would have a built-in reflex to reach out in trust to our Savior that would appear in times of confusion. Jim Wilder is a psychologist, and his work has been to apply this concept of attachment to our spiritual formation, to our discipleship, our relationship with Jesus. And I think that, it is, that understanding it this way can help us understand the Joseph story in some new ways. And we want to, I want to talk about that a little today. Our Advent series we're in right now is called How to Hope Again. We've talked about hope in times of doubt, in times of despair, in times of sadness, in times of longing. Today we're going to talk about hope in times of confusion, because there's no doubt that Joseph was probably a little confused when he found out that Mary was pregnant. And for many of us, times of confusion become like a faith crisis. We think, well, I wasn't supposed to be this way, or God has abandoned me, or something like that. But I think that when we start to view our relationship with God in terms of attachment, uh, and when we've done that kind of work with God, it can get flipped to where we now find comfort in God in the midst of trials and hardships and confusing times instead. And so I want to explore how this story, this, uh, this moment of confusion in Joseph's life can, can help us maybe live into that kind of life with God. The text gives us an important clue about what kind of guy Joseph was. It says this in verse 19. It says, Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Joseph was faithful to the law. Now, that little line tells us an awful lot about Joseph. Some Bible translations say a little different. They'll say, Joseph was a righteous man. Instead of saying he was faithful to the law, they'll say that he was a righteous man. And so in Joseph's culture, uh, the Hebrew word behind the Greek word for righteous would have been the word tzaddik. Tzaddik. That's the word they would have applied to Joseph as a righteous man. Tzedekah simply means righteous in Hebrew. So a tzaddik is a righteous man person. Now, this is not simply an adjective to describe somebody. They were not saying that Joseph was tzaddik. He was saying that Joseph was a 
tzaddik. It's like a label that you attach to somebody. A tzaddik is a Jewish man who diligently obeyed the law. These were holy men. It was like a class of people in the community, and they followed diligently the law of God, the law that is found in the Old Testament. And now since we can go back and read this law, that helps us get an even better sense of what kind of person Joseph was or how he may have lived. For example, every day Joseph would recite in Hebrew the foundational Jewish prayer, the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Every day he would recite the Shema. He would delight in the law of God. He would meditate on it day and night because he believed that truly loving God means to love his laws as well. Joseph would carefully observe the Sabbath. He would probably fast often on the Sabbath. He wouldn't do any work on the Sabbath. He would celebrate regularly the Jewish holy days like Passover or the Festival of Booths. He would be a regular at the synagogue, taking in the teaching, perhaps even teaching himself sometimes. He'd have a killer beard that he never shaved. He would have a prayer shawl with long tassels on it. He was a tzaddik. He would do all of these things and more. Now Joseph's status as a tzaddik is about to get challenged. It's about to get complicated, I guess I should say, because Mary, Joseph's fiancée, becomes pregnant, and Joseph is not the father. And so now we see the challenge of the next words in our passage. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, he was a tzaddik, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. What does it mean by public disgrace? Well, in the law, the punishment for Mary getting pregnant outside of wedlock could be stoning. It's not clear how often it was practiced in that day, but we know it must have been practiced some because remember in John 8, the angry crowd brings a woman caught in adultery to Jesus with stones in their hands, ready, ready to, to condemn her. And so I don't know how often or how likely it may have been that this happened to Mary, but I know that it happened to some of them. And even if she wasn't stoned, there's still a social death that would happen to Mary. It's likely she would never ma marry again and she would be ostracized the rest of her life. So Joseph's reputation as a tzaddik is on the line. If he marries her, he's endorsing this sin and he is breaking the law. But if he divorces her, he's sending her to the wolves. What's going to become of Mary? And so there's, we can see that, the, I think the author is trying to help us see, there's a little bit of this internal struggle going on in, in Joseph. I mean, it's evident in the fact that he chooses, it says, quote, to divorce her quietly, the text says. In the Jewish tradition, you could divorce a woman with just a couple of witnesses, and hopefully this would maybe kind of keep the, the furor down, right? The, the reactions of the community perhaps would be minimalized if he divorces her quietly. I think that's probably what he's, what he's thinking and what we're supposed to understand. He's, he's trying to do the best he can for Mary in light of the circumstances for all that he knew. Joseph didn't have to do it that way. Nobody in his day, unfortunately, would blame him for being as public as he could be about it in order to clear his name, saying, look, she's become pregnant. I'm not the father. I have nothing to do with this. I'm a tzaddik, you know? Like, nobody would probably blame him for doing that. In fact, the crowd that brought the adulterous woman to Jesus, nobody there seemed to find a big problem with it except for Jesus, right? But it says something about Joseph that, I don't know, it's, it's like he's trying to do his best 
to maintain as much dignity for Mary as he can, but also, you know, the tension of the fact that he's supposed to follow the law, and the law is clear here, right? For all he knew, she just cheated on him. And so what I think we're learning about Joseph is that he is a tzaddik in, I think, maybe the fullest sense of the word. Like, he, he's a righteous man, not just that he follows the law, not just that he knows the law, but that he, he actually has a heart of love who wants to do the right thing by God, but he's confused in this moment as to exactly what it is. Joseph, I think, really did have a loving attachment to God. Many men in Joseph's village would have unfortunately turned her over without blinking an eye. Joseph cannot do that. He cannot do that. I already mentioned the angry mob who brings this woman to Jesus with their stones in hand. And Jesus, what does he do? He holds up a mirror to them. He says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then they realize they see themselves and one by one the stones drop to the ground as they, as they drop them and leave. This crowd of people that brought this woman, I imagine many of them in that crowd would have been people who considered themselves tzaddiks and that it was that status that was compelling them, in fact, to bring this woman there. They wanted to test Jesus' righteousness and see if he measured up to the law or not. Of course, Jesus shows them a righteousness that's completely different than any that they had ever thought of. Joseph genuinely loves God. He loves Mary. His aim to do, is to do as little harm to her as he can, I think, while still following the law. And so he decides to divorce her quietly, it says. Now, no sooner had Joseph made this decision when immediately something changes. It says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this, uh, finally, Joseph gets the rest of the story, the story that we already knew, you know, reading it as uh, in this, you know, hindsight, right? We already knew what was happening, but Joseph, at this point in the story, he doesn't know. And finally, he gets the rest of the story. His wife, she didn't cheat on him, quite the opposite. It's because of her faithfulness that God has chosen her to bear the Messiah. And that's wonderful, of course. However, notice it does nothing to alleviate the social problems they're still going to have to face. It's not like Joseph can wake up the next day and stroll out into the public square and say, hey, everybody, it's all good. It's cool. Like, my wife was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. I know this because I dreamt about it. Like, that's not going to fly. They still have some problems on their hands, even though Joseph now knows what's going on. But a deeper sign of Joseph's true righteousness is that he does not care. The word of God is all he needs. In fact, it's almost like Joseph was waiting for God to give him a reason to marry, to marry her still. It's like he knew there's, there's something wrong here. Like, what is happening? And when the angel appears and, and gives him the word and gives him the truth, Joseph doesn't hesitate. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Look, I don't want to read too much into the text, but it's like, Joseph didn't wake up and deliberate, did he? He woke up and he married her. He's not like, okay, well, let us continue with our, our regularly scheduled wedding. No, he woke up and he's like, let's do it now. He took her as his wife 
immediately. He didn't waste any time. He just obeyed God right away. Listen, so often in confusing times, we start to question our faith and we question God. And when things get upside down, what happens is instead of running toward God, instead of reaching out to God in trust, we put God on the witness stand and we start to question God. This is what often happens. That's not what Joseph does, though. As soon as God speaks, he obeys. In fact, this passage shows us something important. It's this. God's word often comes to us in the chaos. It often comes in the chaos. There's so much for us to learn here. Like, how do we become that kind of person? Where in the middle of the storm, the confusion, that's when we have our greatest moment with God. The kind of person who's so sure about who God is that we don't hesitate to obey him, even when it doesn't make sense. And I think that's where the, the science of attachment can help us. What, like what if God designed us to attach to him as a child attaches to a parent so that when things don't make sense, we reach out to him? God is the one we lean on instead of the one that we blame. I think that is the key to finding hope in confusing times. It's this, to have hope in confusing times, we must move from thinking about God to attaching to God. We've been, we've been told for a long time that being a Christian is ultimately about knowing, knowing things, like a, a cerebral paradigm for the faith. You know, as I get older, I, re, I, I realize that I can never know enough. And I'm, I'm a person who likes to learn, like, but I can never know enough to satisfy my heart. Knowing about God has been the basic framework for our faith and for our discipleship, for our spiritual growth. And we've followed this for a long time in the, in the kind of modern Western era. But if you're going through a hard time, we say, what you need are the right answers. You need to know the things that you don't know. And then once you know them, then you'll be fine. But look, if Christianity is just like a puzzle to solve, that you can solve if you're smart enough, there's really no more room for, there's no room for trust in that equation, is there? But trust is really what a relationship is all about. Look, if you're married in the room, I bet you on the day you said, I do, you didn't know everything you, were, you could know about your spouse. I bet today you'd be like, you know what? I knew actually relatively little at that time about my spouse. And yet you said, I do. What did you do there? You took a step of trust, didn't you? You trusted that you could give your life to this person even though you didn't know it all yet. You didn't know nothing. You knew enough. But can you ever really know enough to mitigate all risk when we're talking about the rest of our lives? No. You trusted. You took a risk. You took a step. Imagine a hurting child falls down on the playground and says to themselves, well, before I can go find comfort in my parent, First, I must decide what I think about them. Like at that point, the decision's already made. You don't trust them. In a human relationship, attachment means that we can trust another person without having all the answers. You don't need all the answers. We, we, that makes sense when it comes to people. We have a harder time with that with God. And yet it's the very example of faith that, that God gives us in the Bible. Basically, the continual question the Bible asks is, are you going to trust God or not? Are you going to step out in trust of God or not? Kierkegaard was famous for his biting critique of the Christianity of his day. He would often notice how the pastors 
He lived in 19th century Denmark. The pastors of his day would often preach about reasons for Christianity. They had all of their reasons for why Christianity was true. And he thought that obsessing over reasons demonstrates how confused these pastors were about exactly what Christianity was. I mean, he would say, imagine a lover giving three tidy reasons for why he loves the beloved. That would cheapen the love, would it not? He says, is it not obvious that the person who is really in love would never dream of wanting to prove it by three reasons or to defend it, for he is something that is more than all reasons in any defense. He is in love. And yet when it comes to God, we want reasons. We want knowledge and answers. In fact, these have become often the basis for our faith, I think. Instead of love, instead of trust. One night I was out on a run. I was going through maybe the biggest trial of my life. And we had a daughter who was on the other side of the world. We'd been fighting for years to complete this adoption. But it was, it was like every force in the world was kind of working against us, trying to stop us. And as I, as I ran, this song came on my headphones. And uh, the first line of it says, Thank you for the wilderness where I learned to thirst for your presence. And it hit me like, you know, I was in the wilderness but was I thirsting for God's presence there or not? Or was I demanding reasons? Look, what I've realized is that you'll, you'll, never, you'll never have enough reasons to fully satisfy everything. I mean, how could you have it? How could you know at all? God is eternal. Uh, there's a book I'm listening to right now about Reese Howells. He was like a, a revivalist um, in the Welsh Revival, and he Oh, man, the stuff that God did in his life was incredible. We're talking about, like, healings and, and, and miracles and people being delivered out of life of sin and, like, miraculous moments of provision or just the right amount for people. Just incredible things that God would do. He'd speak to Reese Howells, and he would hear him, and he would go and do it. He'd, like, knock on that door, right? Well, I don't know who lives there. I don't know. Knock on that door. Well, God, this is weird. Like, I don't know anyone on the street. Knock on that door. Okay. Knocks on the door. There's a sick woman inside praying that God would send someone to pray for her, and she's healed. Like, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about in, in his life. And you know what's interesting I notice is he still has to learn to trust. Like, what more reasons, what more proof could you want? But every time God would show him something, then God would call him to a new level of surrender. And then, and then he would struggle with it, he'd wrestle with it, and then he'd surrender finally. And, and, and then God would call him to another level. He'd say, oh, I don't know about that one, God. Ah. And, and he'd stay up all night. He'd pray, he'd fast, and be on his knees. And finally, okay, God, I surrender. And God would do something. And then God would call him to another level of surrender. He'd like, oh, God, I don't know if I can do that. And on and on it would go. I mean, he'd see, you'd think that when, once you've seen one, <laughs> like, you would be fully in. You know what I mean? Like, okay, God, I trust you in all things. But apparently that's just not how it works. Think about Israel. Like, they had God in front of them in a pillar of smoke. And they're still like, I'm going to go worship this golden cow. You know? Like, reasons, proof, is not enough for us. As I ran that night, 
I made the decision that I wanted love over reasons. Not that I don't think reasons are important. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But look, every act of trust involves at least some risk. And you're not going to, you cannot risk if you don't first trust. And you cannot trust if you have not attached to the God who's calling you to trust. Some people will hear what I'm saying and they'll think that, well, okay, this proves that Christianity is irrational. And I'm like, you bet it is. Think about it. I'm talking about a God who became a baby, who died and came back to life. Like, yeah, it's crazy. It's utter nonsense. It's even offensive if it's not true. Now, don't get me wrong. There are lots of reasons to believe. Uh, reasons that God is real, reasons the resurrection really happened. You know, I don't know how you get a, everything that we see in the universe is contingent upon something else for its existence and the universe itself is that way as well which suggests the existence of a non-contingent reality which I call God you ever think about consciousness just how crazy that is there's like this you can, you can intend something you, know, you ever think about the category of intention like what does it mean to intend. This music stand can't intend anything. You know, like a, uh, a, a, a vat of chemicals cannot intend to do something. We hear a lot AI, artificial intelligence. It's a little misleading because intelligence, I don't know about that. It can't intend. The intention is to willfully and freely choose to pursue a direction, a telos, a goal, an end. And that's only something a conscious being can do. We can only intend, and I don't know how you get intention out of a, a vat of chemicals or a pile of matter. If you don't have, I don't know, a fountain, an eternal fountain of consciousness from which all consciousness springs, which I consider to be the ground of being, or God. Anyway, I've got reasons, okay? Like, we've got reasons for this, but here's the thing. Thinking about God, having reasons, trying to prove God, these things are as close to Christianity as checking my email is to reading Shakespeare. Like, sure, that's part of it, but you know what? It's not even close to all of it. We've got to learn to trust, to love God. That's what it is. I don't care how much you know if you don't love him, if you don't have that attachment to him, we're missing it entirely. And so I've been trying to change my faith foundation to, from reasons to love. How silly would it be to lay out my reasons for God, to why I love God? Just like how silly would it be to lay out my reasons for why I love Natalie? She's my wife. I've given myself to her. And I love her. To break it down, to atomize it down into little reasons would cheapen it, would it not? And so I want to make this transition in my, in my faith. And I, I've got a few suggestions for how we can start to do that. Number one, I think it's important for us to see God's smile. We must learn to see God's smile. There's, there's studies that demonstrate the importance of seeing a smiling face. When somebody smiles at you, it's like things light up in your brain and pathways are formed and you start to learn that you matter and that you can trust you become a whole and healthy person. And so, look, if we can't trust someone, then we're going to have a hard time attaching that person. In fact, it's impossible. The Old Testament often talks about uh, when we're in the presence of God, 
You know, the, the original language is literally saying before the face of God. That's like the literal translation of the Hebrew there. When we're talking about being in the presence of God, it's before the face of God. And you see it sometimes like in the classic benediction in Numbers, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Like that's basically saying, may God smile at you. You see how important that is? And so one thing that Jim Wilder suggests is that when you pray, uh, this is going to feel awkward at first, but when you pray, pray with a smile on your face. Pray with a smile on your face. Literally make yourself smile. Uh, because as you do it, it will remind you that's God's smile for you. That's how God feels about you. You can't, you can't smile and not feel a change physiologically. Like it just releases something in you and you feel better. Just smile and you feel better. And when you do that, you start to realize, oh, this is, this is the way God feels towards me. Wow. That's awesome. See God's smile. Number two, you need to replace your system with a someone. Replace our system with a someone. Our impulse is to always make God into a system of thought. Like a series of doctrines, logical proofs, this kind of thing. But Christmas is where our systems are smashed by a someone. God did not come as a system. He came as a someone. He came as a baby. The Bible's clearest answer to our questions about confusion in life is not to give us a system to sort it all out, but for God to make himself a face in the midst of it all. Like when you pray, you do not pray to a system, you pray to a someone. You cannot attach to a system. You cannot love a system. Which is why it's a good thing Christianity is not a system. It's a story about a someone who came for you. And so, you got to keep this central to your faith. Like never let go of the personal nature of our God, that he is irreducibly relational. That's why we exist because God is a relational God, and that is at the heart of who he is. It's not, it's not like an auxiliary, auxiliary or add-on to his character. It's like, no, nah, it's like central to who he is. God is in his very nature, as a Trinitarian God, relational. And number three, look for God in the chaos, not at the end of it. Look for God in the chaos, not at the end of it. For Joseph... If he'd held on to say, well, you know, God, I'll get back to you when this is, when I'm done tending to this matter. Look for God in the chaos. As we learn from this, sometimes it's in those moments. Notice Joseph decided to do the best he could with what he had. He'd made as best as he could tell the, the, the holy, the most righteous decision in the moment to divorce her quietly. And that's when God spoke. There was a little act of surrender in Joseph, and that's what God used. God spoke in the chaos, not at the end of it. I sometimes wonder, you know, why, why did God choose to come to Mary and Joseph in the way he did? Like, it seems like the worst time for God to show up. Couldn't he have waited a little while until they were married and, like, save them a little bit of heartache, you know? That's not what God did. I don't know why God did it exactly that way. Why has he got to come when Mary's not even, you know, married yet? And, uh, and she's pregnant all of a sudden. I don't know the answer to that, but look, you know what I do know? Is that having done that, it means that Jesus was literally in the storm with them. Literally. Because as it went with Mary, so it goes with the divine fetus. If stoning is her destiny, so it is for Jesus. 
Jesus is literally in the storm with her. And so the prayer exercise for us today is to ask, what is your source of confusion right now, your storm or your thing that you just can't see out of right now? Where is Jesus in it? And to see him smiling at you even through it. To ask what God might have for you in it. And how might your love and trust for him grow? And so whatever whatever kind of storm you're in, whatever confusion you're in right now, let your posture not be one of turning your back to God, but one of reaching out to him as a child does to their parent. And let us start to attach to God so that when those storms come, it's not a battle within us of whether or not God is there, whether or not he's with us, but that we have formed an attachment to our loving God that's, that through days of prayer and relationship and dwelling with him, that now we know who he is, where he is, and what he wants of us. How might, God, how might your love and trust for God grow today? The hard truth is that times of confusion are also the times where our love for God can grow the most and our trust for him can grow the most. And so if you're in that situation now, I'm sorry, but you also have an opportunity to attach to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that right now um, that we would be able to see you in our storms, that we'd be able to know that you are there and that that would be the source of our hope. God, that you offer us a hope, not for some distant remote future that we can't see, but a, a hope for right now as evidence in the fact that you came. And Christmas is all about the reality that you have arrived. And through your spirit, you are still here. And so for anyone here right now, Lord, that is in a difficult, dark, confusing time, I pray, God, that you would just impress upon them where you are in it. Let them see your face in it. Let them see the love in your eyes and for them to know that just as you were in it with Mary and Joseph, you're in it with them too. That we love you and praise you for all that you've done and continue to do. In your name, amen.